Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Hamish Douglas. Many of you will be familiar with Hamish as the founder and chief investment officer and chairman of Magellan Financial Group. Hamish is also the portfolio manager of the company's flagship fund, the Global Equities Fund. Many of you will be familiar with him uh, appearing on the show two times before, and it's a year ago that we last spoke to him. And what a year it's been for Hamish and the team at Magellan. Some personal milestones for Hamish having turned 50. Uh, the flagship fund is now 12 years old uh, and returned over 20% for the financial year FY19. That gives them a compound annual growth rate of just over 16%. But equally so, what's very, very impressive is the fact that their ability to preserve capital in down markets with only a 50% downside capture is also a really solid return. I talked to Hamish about multiple things in terms of what the biggest mistakes are that he sees investors making, uh, as well as the current state of China-US negotiations, uh, as well as what lower interest rates mean for investors and why they're so fundamental to valuations. We also talk about uh, Facebook's new cryptocurrency Libra at the end, which is a fascinating discussion. We also touch on Facebook's new cryptocurrency Libra and what that may mean for global currencies and also the prospects of Facebook going forward, which Hamish and the fund is an investor in. As a reminder, this podcast isn't designed to be a recommendation of any one investment, and we encourage everyone to seek the advice of an advisor prior to making any investment. Please listen to the disclaimer at the back of the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Please don't forget to send me your feedback. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks for listening. Hamish Douglas, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to come back on. This is uh, the third time. It's the first time we've had anyone on the podcast three times. So you've set the record and and, and, and well done. But also, I hope you're going to ask me back again. I hope that doesn't mean this, is, this no. is the last. These yearly updates are great. And what a year it's been. I think you've, uh, if I'm right, you've turned 50. The fund's turned uh, 12. Um, you, you've had great returns at over 20% for the last 12 months. So up 16% for the last 10 years. And uh, you know, had very good performance. And the share price uh, is obviously at very high levels. Um, well done. Well, well, we'll keep chipping away. We don't try and get ahead of ourselves at Magellan. So uh, I think we're, we take it there. These markets can be humbling at, at, at times. Obviously, the last 12 months was, uh, was very good to us. But, you know, you get markets that, that, that go against you as well. So we don't get carried away in the, uh, when it's going well, and nor do we get too depressed when markets are going against you. One of the key things I quite like about the numbers when I look at them is the protection to downside. Um, I often talk to clients, and many of our clients have you know, worked hard and done re relatively well, and uh, you know, they, they bring the, the family jewels, if you'd like, to be looked after by an external advisor or seek advice on that. But uh, often talk to them about the best way to build wealth is actually to um, minimise large drawdowns and the, f and the fact that over the last 10 years, your drawdown rate or participation when markets are going down is about half of what the market is. 
to me is a, a really standout number. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's very important to 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 our strategy. Um, you know, we're very pleased with that ratio. I think that's probably exceeded our expectations on the, on the downside. But having materially lower drawdown risk. Uh, the markets, I think, is is very important uh, at the end. It creates real options for us when markets sell off. So let's say markets suddenly sell off 20%. If we could replicate that performance in the past and if we were down 10 when the markets are down 20, I could sell things in my portfolios down 5 and 10 and buy things in the market that are down uh, 20 and 30. And that, that adds real value through through the cycle. So if you can design portfolios that have that resilience on the downside, and then you're able to redeploy when those market corrections happen, it, it really can create additional returns for investors through the full cycle. But of course, also what it does is Im, Im, improves or, or reduces people what is known as sequencing risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially for retirees who would be invested in our, in our product, if we don't have those drawdowns, that means if they're drawing out 4% per annum, um, you know, if markets fell 50% and you still wanted 4% return, you're effectively going to be drawing down effectively 8% of your of your capital down 50. Uh, where if we're down much less, we're going to have much less of that sequencing risk where people have to reach into their uh, reach into their capital. So we, we understand that. We, we do some very specific things in the strategy that we think materially increase the probabilities of having that downside resilience. Uh, and it's been incredibly um, um, uh, robust through many, many downside um, uh, periods, but it's not—it's not guaranteed. I don't—I don't, We're not doing anything fancy with derivatives or or, or, or anything else. Death and taxes are the only things that are guaranteed, right? Uh, that's correct. Well, I hope we'll overcome death one day, but I don't think I'll let her overcome taxes. <laughs> don't tell my wife that; she won't be excited. Um, now, tell me, uh, how? Just as a refresher for um, some of our listeners, talk to me a little bit about the investment process and how you go about at Magellan getting to a position where you're comfortable to invest in a company and then similarly how you get to a process where you're about to sell a company well you're asking a broad a broad question there the Mm. first thing i'd say is investing into a company we're only interested in investing in outstanding businesses Uh, businesses that have very very deep and durable long-term competitive advantages and can earn excess spreads on their above their cost of capital. So we want high return on capital businesses with deep and entrenched uh, competitive uh, advantages. So how do we really understand the businesses with a lot of research? You know, we, we have 30 research analysts at, at Magellan. The Magellan Global Fund's 26 or 27 stocks at the at the moment with sort of 30 analysts. I'm actually invested at the moment across all our sectors mm-hmm. uh, of, our, of our research. So we've got financial investments, we've got technology investments, we've got out of the franchise sector, we've got out of the infrastructure sector, and we've got out of healthcare. So uh, broad across that. Our, our process would start with, we have to do a very, very detailed investment committee paper. Mm-hmm. And the investment committee determines effectively the quality of the business. We've got a quality scoring system. I think we've got 13 people on our investment committee, the most senior people in the investment team and all of them have a vote and I don't share that committee. Mm. So I try not to dominate the uh, the committee. I only have one single vote on that committee and with 13, the casting vote actually sits with the chairman who's with with Gerald. who's uh, When when was the last time you voted for an investment that didn't end up going into the portfolio? Well, I I vote many times for an investment that hasn't been in the portfolio. You know, we we, we cover well over 100 securities through, through the investment committee 
and you know I'm earning 25 on average. So by definition, there's a lot of stuff that's approved that isn't in that. We have to have a larger shopping list than what may be, be owned. But there have yes. been cases where I have not necessarily been in agreement with the committee on exactly the rating on a stock. And that, that's the process working appropriately, unless it's been through that. And they, these are often 100-page reports. I think the latest one we had may have been over 150 pages um, that went to the investment committee. Incredibly yes. detailed uh, report. Then it gets its rating and it gets approved as an eligible security. And across your um, 27 investment professionals, how many stocks or securities would you be covering? Roughly speaking, well, we don't disclose exactly those okay. those, 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 those numbers, but 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 let's say in 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 very detailed research, it's approved. Let's say it's between one hundred and two hundred securities. But what we would follow mm-hmm. is broader is broader than that. But we are very focused. We don't cover thousands of uh, of companies here here at Magellan. Makes sense. So over the last twelve years in the international fund, as an example. Can you talk to me a little bit about what might have been your biggest success and then importantly, what may have been your biggest error, failure, mistake and what you've learnt out of that in the process? Yeah, well, I'll go back and answer the other one because okay. when, when, when failures, you asked about selling as well in the yes. last question, which I which skipped my mind as, yep. I was, as I was talking. You know, we, there's three reasons we would sell. Um, the first reason is what I call opportunity cost. We're managing this as kind of a 25 stock portfolio. I regard mm-hmm. it as like managing a football team mm-hmm. and you can only have a certain amount of players. So I, when, when it comes up through our investment process and we find a really good investment at attractive price, I'm most likely having to kick something out of the portfolio. And it may well be that that stock is still undervalued, but I've found something materially more undervalued and we kick it out. We don't let it become 28, 29, 30, 33, 34 stock. It's very easy to find a good idea, but you just keep diluting your best ideas by adding more and more stocks into the portfolio. So the first is the, the opportunity cost. What gets kicked out to bring the new investment in? That's a very important discipline of, of, of what we do. We would sometimes sell on just an absolute valuation. It's run and we just cannot see future returns. It, there's no margin of safety in the, in the investment, so we'll sell them on an absolute. Often they're kicked out before we get to that because we've found something better and we've, we've kicked the investment out. And then, of course, which goes into this question mm. is when we make mistakes. Um, you know, and we, we have made mistakes, and it's inevitable in this business. You're trying to predict the future. You're trying to uh, predict complex industries with behavior. a lot of competitive dynamics and, and, and behaviours. And I actually made our worst mistake we've ever made mm-hmm. in the last 12 months. Hines. Yeah, Kraft Heinz. So notwithstanding, we had one of the best returns we've had in many years. Yes. The single worst investment decision I've made actually happened in the last twelve months when you uh, got as well. Return. When we had a stunning, when we, when we had stunning uh, returns, and 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 the lesson is when you when you make a mistake, you you, you really have to own that mistake. You have to recognise it. You have to discuss it internally and externally. You don't reinvent history. And you have to become the owner of that mistake, and then you have to make a decision. In nearly all circumstances, we make a mistake. The best decision is to get rid of it, even though it's painful at the time. You should not be trying to earn your money back, because it's often something that's fundamentally well, the changed. Well, the sunk costs and the behaviour. Yeah, the sunk costs are completely irrelevant. It's only about you, you. You have to look at that investment price today. Does it make sense to hold it? You can't think about what you paid for the investment when you make a mistake. And a lot of people make the mistake. They hold on to these falling swords in the hope, or they double down on them 
because they think yes. they've still got the lens what they what what they're wishing it to be, mm-hmm. and therefore the multiples halved or something, and then they saying is let's let's double up on on the. Do you, do you have any this. specific structures to allow your decision makers and yourself to uh, manage that behavioural risk and that decision making risk? Well, you know, I've I've written a lot on on behavioural biases. Um, in that, it's on a, on our website. We talk about these things a lot. It's it's difficult. You're naturally hardwired um, to have these sort of behavioural biases um, in there. You know, pe- pe- people have um, you know loss aversion biases. Mm-hmm. They have sunk cost problems. We have anchoring biases. We have confirmation biases. All these shortcuts are sort of in our human psychology. And therefore, by, by writing them down and recognising them and having processes when something goes wrong to just brutally, objectively um, assess the situation um, when, when, when that happened. And the, the other question you're asking, you know, what has gone right over time? You know, what, what our business is all about is, is compound returns, okay? So we want businesses that can compound their returns over multiple, multiple years, so even when you look at Kraft Heinz, that we may have lost on the position sizing 2% of the portfolio's value in aggregate over time. Mm-hmm. But then you look, so we had a 4% position, fell by 50%, it was a 2% position. The maximum you can lose on the downside is your position size. But when it compounds returns, you take Visa and MasterCard, uh, Yum Brands, Microsoft, Microsoft We've all made between five and seven times our money in those. So it's getting the compound duration stories right and obviously minimising the frequency of a Kraft Heinz happening. We've had very few of them, but we had Tesco as well. That wasn't a great investment, and most of them had quality problems and other things, but it's the compounding of returns which really generates the excess return in this, in this, in this business. And we've had a whole series of them that have been in the sort of five to seven times our money over the last 13, uh, 13 years. Where do you put Adidas in that sort of category of history for yourself? Um, it was a mistake originally in Adidas that I, I've, we got tailor-made wrong, which was their golfing, golfing um, brand. which was their golf, which they've now got rid of them. Their core apparel business has actually done much better than we thought it, it, it was. So even though new, we, we, new we CEO, right? yeah, and, and the new yeah, CEO's cool. done a very good job. So we sold out of Adidas. In hindsight, it was probably a mistake to, to, to sell Adidas. But we, we had part of the investment thesis wrong. And when you have part of your investment thesis wrong, often is just, just don't start self-adjusting for that. And, you know, the apparel side of the business is more difficult. They've got a good footwear business, but a lot of what's gone right has been on the apparel side of Adidas, but it's a good business. Would I invest in Adidas today? Yes, they don't have the tailor-made golf business mm-hmm. inside the business, which was really causing them a lot of um, uh, problems. But Nike's a fabulous business as, uh, as well. And we, we don't own Nike, but yep. would we own Nike? Absolutely, we don't own Nike or Adidas. It comes down to valuation. You talked about uh, the pressure to adjust, and I think one of the things we're seeing in the market at the moment is quite a bit of style drift from managers and the temptation to chase and the fear of missing out with this bifurcation in the market where we've got a lot of uh, companies that really, you know, nosebleed type multiples. Um, Is that something you're conscious of in sort of style drift? And I notice that your drawdown, as I talked about before, is 
your drawdown protection has been very, very good. However, that October, December quarter last year was probably the most that you've participated in a drawdown uh, over, over the 12, 12 years of the fund. Um, how do you guard against style bias or do you think it's right to adjust at various points and if so, how? Yeah, well, Dave, I'm not sure I assure you. Whichever was the biggest drawdown month, October or November, I think we had about 50% of the month, which was the most severe um, month. So we, we didn't see anything materially change in, in, in that. Um, at the core of our investment philosophy is to, is to invest in a concentrated portfolio of outstanding businesses uh, that earn excess returns on their, on their capital. And we cap our overall risk ratios at something called a combined risk ratio of 0.8. And nothing changes inside that box philosophically. Um, but, but, but we fundamentally believe that you need to adapt with the type of things you hold inside that box as the world is, is, is changing. And I think a lot of fund managers, I think a lot of fund managers I observe are kind of one-trick ponies. Mm -hmm. They get onto an investment theme and that investment theme makes them a lot of money. Um, and then it either gets fully priced or the world changes and they keep doing the same thing and suddenly all that excess return starts to dissipate. Mm -hmm. But while it was being generated, the manager thought it was all then. But they were just in the right place at the right time. But the times change. All those things get fully priced and get recognised by the, by, by the market. So if you, if you look at what Magellan's done over time, I'm very proud that within our box of our investment philosophy, we've changed as markets have have changed. We used to have 50% of our business, our defensive portfolio in consumer staple and retailing businesses. Mm -hmm. We now have less than 10% of our portfolio in consumer staples and retailings, yet we've got cash and, and defensive businesses representing 50% of our portfolio. It's just the nature of what we're owning in that is substantially different. The philosophical view that we want outstanding defensive businesses that have certain risk characteristics haven't changed, but we've realized that a lot of retailers and consumer staple brands are fundamentally less attractive than they than they were in the, in the past. In our growth business, we don't own a single bank. Banks used to be, of our growth portfolio, probably at least half of them were banks. We don't think banks are attractive places to be looking out 10 years into the future. So we don't own banks in the portfolio, but we've got, we've got a third of our portfolio in technology-related businesses. Seven years ago, we had very little in, in, in technology businesses. I've been batting on about interest rates rising for five years. Mm. And in the last six months, I've done a backflip around our view on, on interest okay. rates because the evidence was starting to, 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 to change on that. So adapting to what's going on in a business sense and economic sense is incredibly important. But I believe you can do that in same, in, inside the same style. Our style would start to drift if our portfolio risk metrics were just drifting up and up and up. Yes. Then we'd be chasing the market. So if we didn't have our portfolio risk caps in our two different portfolios and constructing within that, then our style would be changing. And that's when I regard, yes, people are chasing markets um, in, 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 in doing that. But you do need to adapt to what's going on around you. The, you've, you've spoken in the media and of recent times a little bit about uh, the outlook for interest rates being so important to investors and we're seeing you know, some discussion of whether people are chasing or not. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so, in your view, so important 
for investors to be aware of what the uh, interest rate outlook is? Yeah, well, I find a lot of people making comments that markets are really expensive at the moment mm -hmm. compared to history. So they may say markets are whatever they are, 20 times and they've averaged 16 and therefore markets are overvalued. Mm. And I just find that a, the biggest load of nonsense, whatever. The only way they can make that comment is saying markets are overvalued relative to history is on the basis that interest rates are going we're to go same. back to where they were in history. So let, let me take you through the simplistic side of interest rates and why this is such an important topic. You know, we, we have interest rates in Japan and Europe on long-term interest rates at negative yields now. You know, you know, 10 years ago, we would have thought we'd landed from Mars if we were ever having that conversation. In the United States, we've got long-term interest rates now at 2%, and we're below 2% in, in, in Australia. So let's take a very simple example of a, of a business. Let's say we could identify a business that in perpetuity could grow at 4% per annum, its top line, sort of maybe in line with maybe where nominal GDP growth may be, mm. maybe. Um, very hard to find businesses that don't get eroded over time and things, but let's make a simple assumption you get 4% per annum. And some of our defensive businesses, we may be able to find a very defensive business with a very wide economic moat that we think for 30 years probably could grow in line with the mm -hmm. economy. So let's take the old interest rate world of 5% risk-free rates. We take a market risk premium of 5%, and let's say, I'm not adjusting for gearing, but let's say mm -hmm. that gets you a 10% discount rate. So that business that could grow at 4% per annum forever, its cash flows, should be valued around 16.6 .6 times its free cash flow generation. And don't forget, free cash flow is often below earnings yes. here. So the PE multiple may have to be lower than the free cash flow mm -hmm. multiple. Now let's take interest rates of 4%, they're not 5%. Uh, that very same business growing at 4% per annum now would have a discount rate of nine, not 10, we've gone down by a percent, and it should be valued at 20 times earnings. Now let's go to 3% long-term interest rates. Discount rate comes from nine down to eight. That very same business whose cash flows are growing at 4% per annum should be valued at 25 times earnings. And now let's go down to a 2% interest rate world where long-term bonds in America are. That very same business would now be 33 times free cash flow. So depending whether interest rates are 2% or 5% in the long term, for that theoretical business growing at 4% per annum, you could either pay sort of 16 times earnings or 33 times earnings and be fair value. Mm -hmm. That's quite a wide range. And Absolutely. therefore, this is a very, very important uh, topic. I can tell you with quite a degree of confidence, it's very high probability interest rates will be somewhere between 2 and 5%. Over the next decade, it's not very helpful. Over that, the next decade. Yeah, so okay. that, 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 that's, 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 that's not very helpful. What we've done at Magellan is we've lowered, we were in the 4 to 5% range, we're now in the 3 to 4% range okay. uh, in, 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 terms of, in, in terms of that. And we run sensitivities, how our portfolio would perform if they went above 4 and we actually understand what you don't want to be. If interest rates are going to settle between 2 and 3%, these markets are still undervalued. So you don't want to be sitting in all cash if interest rates are going to stay really low. So, so getting this judgment is incredibly important and no one knows what that answer is going to be, but it's incredibly important for, for, for valuations. And actually, it's even more important. That, that's our defensive portfolio, is working out what multiples you pay for defensives. But, but if you find a higher growth business, and let's say you find a business that could grow at 7 or 8% per annum for the next 20 years, you know, you're doing nearly mm -hmm. double GDP growth. 
for, for, for that period. As interest rates come down, the discount rate goes down and you get a convergence between the discount rate and the growth rate of those businesses. Super rare to find businesses that could grow at those levels for maybe 20 years, but there are a few businesses. Um, as the discount rate and the growth rates converge, you approach something called the Petersburg Paradox. And when the growth rate and the discount rates converge, the valuations approach infinity. Um, and that's why we're so interested in, in businesses that can grow. If you look at Visa and MasterCard, where we made seven times our money, mm -hmm. their revenues have averaged 12% per annum for nine years. We're not going to say they're going to continue at 12% at per annum, um, but at the moment they're trading at 30 times earnings. We don't think in the world of 3 to 4% interest rates, 30 times free cash flow is crazy for a business that's currently growing its revenues in the 10 to 12 range. It could slow down materially and still, there can still be, still be fundamental, it's still there's a margin of safety in those, in those businesses. Of course, the interest rates spike back up to 5%. That's when the game of those, that starts to, to change. You'd see a very leveraged here to, 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 to this interest rate scenario. Does that methodology allow you to get close to something like Amazon that in the past you've said you really like the business but just couldn't get to grips with the valuation? Um, we understand Amazon well. Um, it, it's a fantastic business. We understand the, the AWS business. The, the problem is you, you haven't got a, a, a good free cash flow handle at the moment to, to, to do it. You know, our, 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 we've got a US fund that, that, that Alan, he, he owns it. It's approved by our investment uh, committee. I, I just find in 25 stocks to buy, there's things where I inherently can feel the margin of safety a, a lot easier. I've got metrics that I can really understand. You, you're relying on, on very long-term um, uh, sort of financial projections. On Amazon, you can get to sensible financial projections and see the value there. Um, but it requires a lot of this to continue going for a long period of time. I think it's a, it's a great business. Um, you know, we've made some additional investments. It hasn't been in Amazon, but there's something else that I think is far cheaper, which is an incredible business that, you know, we haven't disclosed um, uh, uh, yet. But of course, the lower the interest rates, the easier it is to get to high multiples. Sure. But you're not getting near uh, any of these new batch of unicorns that have come out in the market, whether they be Uber, Slack, Pinterest, these type of things? No, that's probably not. We're, we're not in the venture capital business. Okay. Not saying some of those businesses will turn out very well and some of them will be accidents of history. So um, but we, 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 we tend to like probably slightly more established businesses. Understood. Um, the other things you've been talking about, uh, which I'd just like to touch on if I could, we've, we've kicked off the monetary policy, um, but also maybe if we could talk a little bit about um, sort of US trade negotiations, US-China trade negotiations, how you see them playing out and affecting uh, valuations and or risk in the portfolio. Yeah, I, I think you have to distinguish between the short and long term um, here. You know, in the short term, whether or not we have a, I'd describe a truce, not a trade deal. I, I don't think they're going to settle these, these, it's well beyond trade. It's a geopolitical supremacy issue. It goes deep into technology and national security and, and, and everything else. And China is rising. It's not going to give up its ambitions mm -hmm. in the world. And the US, for the very first time in a very long period of time in the last hundred years, is going to have to start sharing the world stage. And that's, that's an uncomfortable position to be in. So you have to think that there's probably going to be ongoing tensions between the United States and the West and China 
for the next 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the first thing you need to get your mind around. The second thing in the short term you have to get your mind around is, is there going to be a settlement of this issue, a truce, a ceasefire in the short term? The markets are pricing that there's going to be a ceasefire. Trump's tweeting that there's going to be a ceasefire. To me, Today. whether there's a ceasefire or there isn't a ceasefire is actually a US domestic political question about what Trump wants going into 2020 um, there. He wants a strong stock market, but he wants to look like he's tough on jobs and tough on China. So how does he balance between a strong stock market and being really tough on on, on China. The markets are backing, at the moment we're all-time record levels, are backing that this risk is going to be sort of dissipated in the, in the, in the, in the short term. Running and if it, doesn't get if it doesn't get di dissipated, markets will be volatile on the back of that. Are we worried about that short-term volatility? No, we're not really worried about that. But the long-term strategic issues is a real portfolio allocation issue because China itself is a very important investment area to get right in the next 10 to 20 years. That is one area of the world that is driving economic growth and has real growth underpinning, particularly on the consumption side, not the fixed asset property building sort of sure. roads and You're things. You're talking about the lower class becoming middle class. Well, I'm actually, do, I'm talking about, yeah, becoming middle class and the middle class yep. becoming prestige. Mass upper middle and, and Yeah, and mass and affluent and, and above. At the prestige side of the market is remarkable. That, that, mm -hmm. that, 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 it's probably driving at least a third of the luxury market in the world. It's starting to now drive the, the global travel market in the world and the numbers that are moving up those chains are staggering. The top part of the pyramid is growing at 30% a year. The pyramid itself is growing at about 9% a year at mm -hmm. the moment in this low growth world. So how do you participate in that when there's a big dispute? We've traditionally played it through multinationals and many of the multinationals have been US. Yes. We've got Starbucks, uh, of course. We've invested in young brands in the past. Apple has a large business there in China, but we don't want to be completely wrapped in the American flag of accessing so this, China. So this, this theme you're hearing a bit spoken about at the moment around deglobalization and how do you position for that? Are you saying there's a shift from these sort of global franchises into more niche organisations that can access certain verticals and, and take advantage of Well, no, uh, we don't necessarily, we, we, we think there's an issue with, with, with American business to, to some extent. But you look at a lot of the multinational luxury companies, they're not having any issues with China at all, and they're growing above 30% a year in China uh, at, the, uh, at, the, uh, at the moment. So I, I, you need to get granular and you need to peel that, peel that onion. Mm. But if you want to increase your portfolio exposure to China, don't forget just doing it domestically in China carries SOE risk, VI uh, variable interest entity risk. It, it, there's a lot of risk doing it directly in China. There's a lot of risk potentially doing it directly with a lot of exposure to American brands in China. So there are non-American brands that have great businesses in China as well. And there's some Chinese businesses that, that are incredibly well positioned uh, as well. But it's just how do you, we would like to increase our exposure and participate in that in China. We just want to do it in a very thoughtful and hopefully intelligent way where we're not taking on too much risk given that this trade issue, these geopolitical issues are just not going to disappear with a ceasefire. Whilst we're on the sort of geopolitical risk and that frame, um, how do you see the tax cuts that were provided by Trump? Uh, do you see those being very beneficial 
A, to the US companies and then to the US consumer. And then I guess following on from that, you've seen the Australian government provide that same sort of stimulus when the Liberals got re-elected and the Morrison government now, um, you know, subscribing to this kind of trickle-down economics. Do you see that as being beneficial to companies and to consumers or do you, do you just don't think it works? Well, first of all, to, to, to companies cutting the tax rates has certainly been beneficial to, to, the to, to their cash flows and be able to do more dividends and they're able to do more share buybacks. Have they invested a lot more in plant or R&D? I don't think there's much evidence of that. So the mm -hmm. windfall has really gone to shareholders. I don't think it's gone back into back into the economies from the companies them, themselves. So I'm sceptical that you change a broad taxation policy like that and it leads to a lot more investment or, or anything else. I think shareholders benefit because I don't think any of these companies really, if the tax rates were higher, would have lower investments. If you get a good return on capital, they're going to borrow the money or, or, or get dividends reinvested or something to, to spend on, on projects. And just changing the tax rate, I don't think it's changed the sort of investment opportunity set for many of these companies in the in the world. From the consumer, absolutely. You give consumers a tax cut and they are going to um, um, spend more money. A corporate tax cut doesn't directly get into consumers' pockets. Income tax cuts are far more supportive of short-term economic growth, I would argue, than corporate um, uh, tax cuts are for, for short-term economic um, growth. Um, certainly, you're putting more money away from the government in the hands of, 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 of free enterprise may lead to better capital allocation decisions. So I'm, I'm not negative on, on the tax cuts that, that, that have been done. But the big issue in the long term is the fiscal sustainability of, 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 of this. If you're doing it when budgets aren't balanced mm -hmm. and you're going to greater deficits at the peak of an economic cycle, what's going to happen in an economic downturn? You're taking on more and more debt. If interest rates never go up, well, maybe we get a free lunch for a long period of time. But many countries in the world who maybe not the United States thinking that they can participate in that sort of game of alchemy that you can borrow money at no cost and it has no consequences, this sort of modern monetary theory, um, um, which seems like a load of baloney to, um, uh, to me. I think it's a very dangerous uh, cocktail. Australia is actually doing in a point where we're actually getting our fiscal account in, in, in good order. So I think in Australia, we're doing it with a very um, moderated um, uh, basis. We're not increasing our, 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 our deficits. I'm very supportive of that. I do personally think that if you're going to fundamentally change the corporate tax rate, you need to put franking on the table as well. I, I know that's a very, very complex topic, yes. but you can't ignore that we refund a lot of our corporate tax and then actually saying our corporate tax rate's uncompetitive. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to do that, you need to do they it more holistic. They, they, they go hand in hand. I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm just sure. trying to be economic rationalist. Yes. Um, there, I, I think our corporate tax system and imputation actually gives pretty competitive outcomes for our companies um, uh, to start with because it's very efficient ultimately for the shareholder. I think Woolworths might have been the last Australian investment you had. Uh, have you become? Have you gotten close? to any uh, Australian companies to hold in the global portfolio recently? Well, we, we hold quite a lot of them in our infrastructure portfolio. Ger Gerald holds yes. qu quite a lot of Sydney airports and transurban and some infrastructure assets in, in I'm just wondering if there's any sort of global leaders that you, you've identified from uh, coming out of the Australian I, I, I actually find it very depressing going through the ASX 100. Um, when, when you go and think about what's going on in the world, and what's likely to happen over time, just strategically where our intellectual capital is actually 
uh, deployed. As I said, we've got no banks anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not enamoured with banks mm -hmm. uh, move, moving out. I think Take out some retailers and some miners. Yeah, re retailers, we don't own any retailers. We don't own any miners. So when you look at Magellan's and you look at the ASX 100, we don't own commodity risk, so that takes them out. I'm not enamoured with banks at the moment. Most traditional retailers I'm, I don't like strategically when I'm thinking about their business models. Mm -hmm. And then you're starting, there's a few businesses left maybe a CSL or something like that, but they're very high price compared to sort of global um, yep. comparisons. Great business, by, uh, by the way. Yes. Um, so it, it's, it, it, it's tough and it just shows how structurally narrow and potentially flawed the large companies in, in, in Australia is. And I think that makes a strong case for people considering some global investments in their, in, in their, in their portfolios. Uh, you know, franking does skew people's thinking here. Uh, you know, but when Australia is two percent of the world, I'm not sure mm. why you'd want seventy percent of your equities in Australia. Yep, absolutely. To change tack a little bit and probably accessing part of those markets that you can't in Australia, um, you've got an investment in Facebook and in Google um, with your sort of global digital advertising platform type of strategy. Facebook has recently gone down the path of, depending on how you define it, a cryptocurrency and and Libra, and I think you've been on the record quite sceptical of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. How do you th view Facebook's move in this area? Yeah, I think you need to separate uh, the two parts of what they're trying to do, do here. Libra is the digital currency. I think it's mm -hmm. very, very different to the cryptocurrencies we've seen out there. The cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. don't have anything underpinning them yep. at all. The only thing that's underpinning them is limitation of supply of the, of the algorithm that creates creates a currency where, where the Libra is genuinely the creation of a new currency in the world backed by a portfolio of fiat currencies in, in Who can tax the their people's head. Got some um, so the, 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 the issue is, is if, if you're forming that, that new currency that's backed by US dollars and Singapore dollars and Australian and Canadian and pounds and whatever it would be, and it's all backed on a one-for-one -one basis with deposits somewhere in the world, there's actual real value, and every day that value can be measured. So, uh, you know, what's a Bitcoin worth? Well, you know, it's a supply-demand. It's whatever. It's like a painting on the wall. Uh, maybe it's a digital painting on the wall. Um, but but the, it's, a, it's a real currency. It creates some real issues from a policy point of view that we could genuinely have a flight out of fiat currencies and into this new... It could become the second reserve currency in the world. It's very, very clever in its concept, but does raise a whole lot of regulatory issues. So that, that's the issue. You know what they want to do, because in emerging markets, their currency is hugely volatile. So you can understand in the underbanked of the world, effectively putting their local currencies into this with stability and effectively being able to transact at zero cost, actually has some real public policy benefits as well. So there's a lot of very clever thinking that's gone into that. The second part of it is Calibra, and Calibra is a wallet. It's really the Facebook side, side of it, which is the wallet, which would enable people to effectively pay using the cryptocurrency. It's like PayPal. Mm. So you go and tap, or if you're banking, it would hold it would hold the currencies. And that's where you'd have the client relationship sitting and all the AML and everything sitting inside the wallet. The wallet doesn't need the cryptocurrency Libra. Uh, it's a very low-cost mechanism. So there's two things. They could proceed with a with their own wallet and use, like others have, and go off Visa and MasterCard sort of rails and accept credit cards and debit cards. But if you really want to go in the unbanked world, you probably, in the emerging markets, you want to bring Libra 
um, uh, uh, to 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 the table. I don't think it's going to be the end that we uh, that we hear that we hear on this. Um, I suspect we will get some movements to sort of digital currencies in the world if I looked out five years. Do I think Facebook's going to be a player? You need a network effect here to develop a true sort of payments wallet. Um, they're as good as well positioned, if not better positioned, outside the Chinese sort of platforms as anyone to do that. Of course, they've got some um, perception problems with regulators and politicians yeah, at the moment. Bit of PR to do. Yeah. Okay. Artificial intelligence. How you know? I remember a couple of years back, you did a roadshow and right into it. I think we saw you know some of the, the little dash hounds. I might have even appeared and. You're using uh, voice recognition software. Uh, are you still very hopeful on artificial intelligence and want to invest in that area? Well, I, I'm probably a lot more hopeful in terms of the investment side of, of what I call sort of cloud cloud computing mm-hmm. and, 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 and software as a service and, and other areas and business models that are, that are enabled by narrow forms of artificial intelligence. And you're saying image recognition and speech recognition and everything else, you know, and algorithms that give you, uh, like we don't invest in Netflix, but what you see on your Netflix will be different to what I see on Netflix. And that, that's a recommendation algorithm, which is using narrow form artificial intelligence. Everything you see on Facebook, effectively your news feed is all an artificial intelligence um, a feed if we move to driverless cars. Again, that's a narrow form of artificial intelligence and machine learning to effectively get the whole data set of the environment around and the machines to, to learn. So do we, do we think narrow forms of artificial intelligence will keep strengthening the business models of Google and Facebook? And, and, and um, yes, absolutely. Um, we do, you know, there's a lot of artificial intelligence behind Uber. I'm not sure Uber survives in the long term, but, um, but, but the whole sort of service and what you get recommended, all your history is all, all there and all the data gets, gets learned from. In the longer term, I think as artificial intelligence goes up through the sort of stages of intelligence and we're at, as we're at narrow forms, but ultimately if you can get to general artificial intelligence and then ultimately super intelligence, it's mind-blowing in our lifetimes if that happens, how the whole world could fundamentally change and who would own the keys to that. And I would add probably quantum computing in this. Quantum computing is probably going to come before you would get um, general artificial intelligence, which would be smarter than any human uh, uh, human beings, but probably the next level of super, real sort of forms of computational power may well be with quantum computing. We're probably a decade um, uh, uh, away from that, but then the algorithms and healthcare discoveries and molecular discoveries in science and things and what could happen with a quantum sort of computer. It's it's a bit worrying for cryptography mm-hmm. if you're worried about it national security it. and things and could 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 break that. No wonder the Chinese are putting so much money into mm-hmm. uh, into quantum computing at the moment. So they're they're probably quantum is probably ten years away. AGI is probably twenty to thirty years away. So we really focus on the twenty to thirty years away. Now we're more focused on how narrow artificial intelligence improves the competitive positioning of businesses with data. Yes. Um, at, uh, is how is how we're thinking. And then of course uh, cloud computing is the total addressable markets of what's addressable of moving your computational power out of sort of data centers and servers on premise into effectively the cloud into very large scale data centers that employs artificial intelligence um, uh, in them. You know, we've got three big Western world players. We own two of them. We own Google and we own Microsoft. We don't own Amazon. 
And I think China's going to be a separate world, and we're looking very closely at China. Can we participate in that world in, in China as well? Hamish, hey, in wrapping up, uh, what, if you were thinking of uh, clients, individual investors, families, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see individual investors make, or what would be the best advice you could offer for individual investors? Well, I think the biggest mistake individual investors make, the biggest one was doing doing the wrong things at the wrong times. Mm-hmm. You know, as Buffett famously says, you want to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And, and we're wired. So when markets are falling, you typically, Fear. you, you, you're fearful and people will typically sell out and then they'll go to, go to deposits at that time. It's exactly the wrong time. You should be investing when markets are plummeting. But psychology doesn't enable most people to do that, we've actually got, you know, if we release certain substances in our bodies, you know, if we're about to be attacked, mm-hmm. uh, it causes your adrenaline glands adrenaline, to, yeah. to go up. So when things, you, you, that's happening to you psychologically when the markets, and of course, when, when things are just ever going up, you're feeling really, really good, you think you've got another holiday, you can renovate the house. So things went up and people suggest things to you, oh, that sounds really good, I want a bit of that. You've got a fear of missing out, so you put it in. So that whole reversal of natural human psychology of how we're wired is what most people fall for. And it's not their fault. It's, it's, it's been hundreds of thousands of years of genetics. Help, helpful that, when we're hundreds... When we well, hunter and gatherers, gatherers, it was incredibly but helpful. Not, inve- to be, but, not but managing not, money. Yeah, but 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 not as not as investors. And and I'd say is that the, the very important thing for investors to understand: this is a game of duration. Any sort of scheme or any thought that you're going to get rich in a hurry, just get it out of your your mind. That normally always ends in tears. The key to an investor is understanding the laws of compound interest at the end of the day, that you want money to make money for you. And as Benjamin Franklin, the founding father of America said, he said, money makes money, and the money that money makes, makes more money. So what you want to do is find some great investments that have great long-term prospects, invest in them, and sit on your ass. And don't get tempted just to flip them or and everything else. Of course, they get to silly valuations, but it's, it's, it's the ability to not get caught up in the short term and to think for the long term. And it's hard to do with all this news and these programs and everything that happens. It's stimulating people every day and all these, all these people are talking about the market, why it went up three points today and fell five points the next day in some detailed explanation. It's just all a load of nonsense. People are better just switching all these things off and looking at their portfolios once a year. Hey, Mish, I think that's a wonderful place to to leave it. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.